Luke chapter 18, as we'll be reading this morning, Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. If you would all stand uh, for the reading of God's word, Luke 18, we we'll reading verses 31 through 34. It says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Father, we pray now that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, give us insight, give us clarity, and help us as we seek to study this very important text. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are once again continuing our journey with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, and our text this morning is kind of just a little note in between two events in chapter 18. You have the rich young ruler uh, meeting Jesus, and then you have the story of the blind man being healed <clears throat> right after this. And sandwiched right in between those two is what may seem to some to just kind of be a, a random statement by Jesus, uh, but it is far from random. It was Jesus' reminder to the 12 apostles and to us of where he was headed. And I want to show you what I mean. Uh, this is a map of basically where all of the events of the life and ministry of Jesus took place. This is Israel. Uh, you see there in the northern section of Galilee, this is where Jesus spent uh, most of his time. This is where he was uh, raised from childhood. You see the little town of Nazareth up there. Uh, it's where Jesus' parents were from. And so from childhood until around age 30, this is where he lived, right around the Sea of Galilee, that region in the north of Israel. Uh, this is where he did most of his, his preaching. This is where he performed most of his miracles. That little town of Capernaum up on the north, uh, northern end of the Sea of Galilee is, was kind of his base of operations. And so for those maybe two and a half uh, to three years or so, this is where Jesus was. He, he went from town to town, preaching, healing, training his disciples up in the north of Galilee. And of course, most of his 12 apostles were from Galilee. And so when we think of Jesus' life, it really is centered around uh, that little region of Galilee. Then in chapter 9 of Luke, a shift takes place. We're going to see this in just a minute when we read about it. Uh, but it says that Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. And so if you look there at the map, you see he's leaving Galilee in the north. He's traveling down through Samaria all the way to Jerusalem at the south of Israel. Uh, this journey to the cross is what Luke 9 through 19 is all about. Ten chapters covering a span of less than a year. And so to put it in perspective, uh, we actually start covered Luke 9 back in, in January of this year. So everything that we've looked at in the past year in the book of Luke took place in the span of maybe six to nine months as Jesus is leaving Galilee and headed towards Jerusalem. All of it was during that journey. He's traveling along and he's uh, kind of stopping from one town and village to the next on his way to the cross. And now we're getting very close. Uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, maybe glance down to verse 35 of the chapter. You'll see there it says Jesus was getting close to, Jerus uh, to Jericho. And if you look at the map there, you can see Jericho is just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And so he's very near the end of this long journey to Jerusalem. And in fact, in the very next chapter, in chapter 19, we'll see Jesus enter the city. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus that we're all familiar with, the, uh, where he's riding in on a donkey and they're putting their clothes in front of him saying, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Uh, that takes place just in the next chapter. And so Luke wants us to keep in mind where Jesus is. 
We don't want to focus in on one story or one teaching and lose sight of the larger context of what's happening in the book of Luke. And so he gives us little reminders throughout this section of where we are in Jesus' ministry, that we're on this journey towards Jerusalem. And one thing that is crystal clear from the way Luke has set things up in his account of Jesus' life is that the focal point of everything was the cross. And so back in chapter 9, when Jesus was in Galilee, he says to his disciples in verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Sounds very similar to our text uh, where Jesus gives them just the explicit uh, foretelling of what's going to take place. And then notice in verse 51 of the same chapter, right after telling them this, he say, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, uh, speaking of him being arrested and, and put on the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so from that point forward, Jesus is now done ministering in Galilee, and he's headed for the cross. He knows that that's where this journey to Jerusalem is eventually going to lead. And in these last few months, Jesus again stops in each town along the way, preaching and spreading the gospel. And again, Luke gives us reminders all along the way of this reality, the fact that we're, we're watching this trip to Jerusalem take place. For example, back in chapter 10, uh, verse 38, Luke says, As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. Well, on their way to where? Uh, to Jerusalem. And so this is just a, a pit stop along the way. Chapter 13, verse uh, 22, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Again, in chapter 17, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And so you keep seeing these mentions where Luke uh, reminds us that we're on a journey here. We're, we're headed to Jerusalem through these chapters. And so Jesus knows. He knows where he's headed. He knows that his popularity with the people is very temporary. Very soon, they would be crying out for his death. And so the first lesson that we learn from our text this morning is that Jesus came here to die. He did not go to the cross uh, reluctantly. He set his face toward Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him there. He pressed on with a sense of purpose. The cross was, in fact, the very reason that Jesus had come. He said himself in Mark 10, verse 45, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die for us, to take our punishment on the cross as our sin bearer. This is why Jesus came from heaven and was born as a baby in chapter 2 of Luke. This is why he then left Galilee and headed for Jerusalem in chapter 9. All of his life was pointing to his death. And so even as we celebrate Christmas here in a few weeks, we must remember that the manger in which baby Jesus was lay under the shadow of the cross. Jesus did not come just to be our guide or our, our moral example. He didn't come just to give us some wise teachings. Jesus came to die. He didn't come merely to manifest to the world the love of God. He came as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And so far from just being a random little side note in the book of Luke, these four verses in the middle of chapter 18 are there to remind us of what this is all about and to point our attention to the coming cross. And so picking up in verse 31 of our text, we're told that Jesus took the 12 and he said to them, and, and notice that Jesus told this specifically to the 12. He took them aside and he told them before any of this happened so that when it all took place, he could remind them that he had foretold it and that it was all a part of God's plan from the beginning. We'll see this happen at the very end of Luke's gospel 
Uh, this is Luke 24, after the resurrection of Christ. It says, he appears to the disciples and he says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He's saying to them, uh, you're my witnesses. You know that I predicted all of this. And then you saw it all happen. You saw me die. You saw me rise again. And you can testify to this. You can be a witness uh, of the validity of this. And so now go and tell the world. And so Jesus told them all of this ahead of time. They didn't understand it at the time. But after the resurrection, they did. Uh, John 2 verse 22 says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Uh, not only did this fulfilled prediction bolster their faith in Jesus' words, but also in the words of scripture. Notice it says there, when they remembered that he said this, they believed the scripture and what Jesus had spoken. And so I think another reason that Jesus told the disciples this was to bolster their faith in the uh, surety of the promises of God. But we'll see that more in a minute. But when, when God reveals something in Scripture, uh, we can count on it. It is trustworthy. It is going to happen. I think a third reason that Jesus told the 12 disciples about this coming arrest and death was as a warning to them. He says to them, we're headed to Jerusalem, and this trip is going to end in my arrest and in my death. Hard times are ahead for anyone who would choose to continue following me. We're not going to take the time to go there now, but back in chapter 9, when Jesus first took off toward Jerusalem, he warned those who wanted to come with him that it would cost them. He said that you've got to be willing to leave everything behind and not look back. And it seems that this is yet another warning in chapter 18 of this coming persecution. It's about to become very dangerous to be associated with Jesus. And so back to our text, verse 31 says, Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Uh, by the way, if you look at the map, of course, Jerusalem you think is down. It's in the south. He's talking there in terms of elevation. Uh, Jerusalem is set up on hills. And so they are literally going up uh, toward Jerusalem there. It says, Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Son of Man is a messianic title of Jesus. It's the way that he refers to himself throughout the Gospels. Uh, the Son of Man title comes from Daniel 7, where it says there that one like the Son of Man sits on the throne with the Ancient of Days, and to this Son of Man was given a kingdom. And all peoples and nations of the world served him forever. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's claiming to be that long-awaited king. This is part of why the disciples could not understand uh, the rest of what Jesus said. If Jesus was the king, how could he be about to die? He hasn't even established his kingdom yet. He hasn't even started to reign yet. He's supposed to rule the world, not be killed. But as we see the story unfold in the rest of what follows in Luke, we'll find out that it is actually by his death that the kingdom comes. His death and resurrection defeated sin and death and was the means by which God would save the world. And so Jesus is the Son of Man. He tells them they're headed to Jerusalem and everything written and the Old Testament would be fulfilled. He goes on in the next few verses to explain just what he's referring to. Uh, it was written in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be mocked and killed and then rise again. And this, of course, leads to the question, well, where is that written in the Old Testament? 
Uh, of course, we see that in the New Testament all over, but w- where was that predicted in the Old Testament scriptures? Many texts that we could look at. I want to show you just two this morning that I think would be sufficient to demonstrate this. Two texts, both of which were written centuries before Jesus lived, and both of which describe in detail the events of the cross and resurrection. The first is Psalm 22, which begins with these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you're familiar at all with the gospel accounts of the cross, you immediately recognize these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the cry of Jesus on the cross in Mark 15, 34. Verse 6 continues to describe the details of Jesus in his death and his rejection. It says in verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You see the mocking and the jeering of those who would watch Jesus being crucified. Then in verse 14, the psalmist describes the pain and the agony that Jesus would experience on the cross. He says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. All of this reminds us, of course, of the cross, where Jesus' hands and feet were nailed, and that held him up there. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Uh, This would describe how Jesus would be whipped prior to the crucifixion uh, with the cat of nine tails, a whip with uh, broken glass and pottery that would sink into the flesh and rip it off. And so he can see, literally see his bones in front of him. Verse 18 says, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, if you're familiar with the gospels, you remember how the Roman centurions, uh, sorry, the soldiers did this very thing. They parted his inner coat, and each one of them took a piece, and then they cast lots to see who would win the outer robe. All of these details foretold centuries before Jesus was even born, and all of it happened just as predicted. These details of the flogging and crucifixion of the Romans, these were methods of execution that didn't even exist at the time of the writing of the book of Psalms, and yet they're written about in such detail. This psalm dates to roughly a thousand years before Christ. Uh, We have access today even to hand copies that even secular uh, people, non-Christians, would agree they date to pre-Christ. And so these are uh, written long before Jesus was born. And yet these details predict exactly what would take place on the cross. One more Old Testament text we'll look at is Isaiah 53. Once again, you see the death of Jesus here predicted, uh, not in the detail of Psalm 22. Instead, here in Isaiah 53, we're given the theological view of the cross. Psalm 22 gives us the literal details of what would happen, the way in which he would be uh, tortured and killed. Isaiah 53 gives us the why of the cross, uh, what was being accomplished as Jesus died and took the punishment for our sins. And again, this text predates the time of Jesus by centuries. Uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, discovered in 1947, contain a copy of Isaiah That's about 150 years prior to the life of Jesus. So nobody can claim this was added after the fact. And yet this 53rd chapter describes how Jesus would be rejected, how he would die, bearing the punishment for the sins of the world. Beginning in verse 3, Isaiah writes, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see there the, the image of Christ not being his life being taken, but instead him laying it down. He goes willingly to the cross. If you're, again, if you're familiar with the Gospels, the trial of Jesus before Pilate and Herod, they're demanding answers from him and he refuses to speak. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus, of course, was killed between two thieves, and then he was buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. He asked for the body of Christ and buried it in his family tomb. Notice also the mention of Christ's sinlessness. He was killed not for his own sin, but for ours. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And see there the prediction of the resurrection. This is after Jesus' soul had been offered for, for the guilt of humanity. It says he shall prolong his days. He's going to come back to life after having been killed. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Over and over throughout this chapter, Isaiah tells us that Jesus did all of this for us. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins. By his wounds, we are healed. Jesus died bearing our sins. And so now we see why it is that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He went willingly to the cross for you and me so that we could be forgiven. The justice of God against our sin was satisfied when Jesus came and bore the punishment that we deserved on himself. This is why the cross is so important. Back to our text, I want to point out a key word in verse 31, where Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Notice that word, everything. I want us to spend some time here this morning considering what we learn about Jesus' view of Scripture. He said, Everything that is written about me by the prophets will be accomplished. This is what we call the doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, Jesus believed in the absolute truthfulness of Scripture. Every story that it records is accurate. Every statement in Scripture is true. Every prophecy it contains will come to pass exactly as it says. Jesus had a very high view of Scripture. We'll see that in a few minutes as we go through several texts showing how Jesus thought of the Bible. And how could this happen? How is it that Isaiah, living 700 years before Jesus, King David, living 1,000 years before Jesus, how could they give us detailed accounts of how Jesus would be crucified? And the answer should be obvious. I mean, humanly speaking, this just isn't possible. Uh, these prophecies had to have been given 
by God, who knows the future and can reveal things that have yet to take place. This is exactly what the prophet Isaiah tells us in chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Uh, God says, if you think that there's another God out there, uh, tell me the future. Predict things that have yet to take place. That's the test. Again, in chapter 46 of Isaiah, God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God sees the future as clearly as the past. He can declare from centuries past things that have yet to take place. And whatever God declares, it will happen. This is the view of scripture that Jesus held to. It's considered extreme by many today, but really it's what it means to be a Christian. We cannot claim to follow Jesus' teachings while simultaneously rejecting his explicit teaching about scripture. Jesus said over and over again that the Bible was written by men who were under the guidance of God. And everything that these prophets wrote down in scripture is true and trustworthy and contains no errors. We're going to walk through uh, several places where Jesus shows us what he believed about the Bible, beginning in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Uh, notice there in verse 35 that statement where Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. This was his teaching about the Bible. In Luke 24, a text we read just a moment ago, Jesus said that these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Uh, this is referring to the 39 books of our Old Testament. We've talked about this before in our Bible study hour, but you see there where he mentions that threefold categorization of uh, uh, law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms. This is referring to the Hebrew ordering of the books of the Old Testament. Uh, the Torah, the Ketavim, and the Nephi'im, which just means law, prophets, writings. Uh, this was the way they organized their, their books of the Bible. But this, it's talking about the very same books that we have today in our, in our Old Testament. And this Hebrew Bible, these Old Testament books, Jesus considered to be absolutely true. He says everything that it predicts will take place. Jesus also viewed the scriptures as authoritative. He taught that it was sin to disobey scripture. Uh, you may remember back in chapter 4 of Luke, Satan tempts Jesus to sin three times, and all three times, Jesus responds by quoting Scripture as the reason that he cannot and will not do what Satan is tempting him to do. For example, Satan tells Jesus, jump off the edge of the temple and uh, let the angels catch you. And Jesus responds by quoting from Deuteronomy in, in verse 12 of Luke 4. Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so not only did he view the Bible as true in its predictions of future events, but Jesus believed that the Bible was the absolute authority in how we are to live our lives. When he was asked his opinion on divorce and remarriage, Jesus responds by pointing to Scripture as the authority on the matter. Matthew 19.3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answers, verse 4, Have you not read? that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, 
hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is a direct quote from the book of Genesis. And Jesus points to that as the authoritative answer to the question of how we are to conduct ourselves in marriage. Jesus was criticized uh, by the Pharisees for not making his disciples observe the Sabbath the way that the Jews typically did. And once again, he points to the authority of Scripture on the matter. Matthew 12, verse 1, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Uh, they're talking there about those traditions that they added to Scripture. And Jesus totally disregarded those as irrelevant. Uh, what was important to him was, what did the Bible say? And he points to Scripture as his defense in verse 3. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how this, on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He says there, we are not doing anything wrong by eating this food on the Sabbath day. And here's three scriptural references as proof that what we're doing is okay. The two examples that he points to, and then there in verse 7, the phrase in quotation marks, he's quoting there another Old Testament text. And so Jesus took the word of God seriously. He believed that it was true, that it was accurate, and that it was authoritative. Not only is it authoritative in determining how we are to live, but Jesus also taught that the Bible was the authority in determining doctrine. It's the authority over our lives, what we do, but it's also the authority over what we are to believe. For example, in Mark 12, the Sadducees come to Jesus asking a question about the resurrection. Uh, the Sadducees, of course, did not believe in the resurrection. They thought when you die, that was the end of it. There's no afterlife. That's, that was their teaching. And so they, they come to Jesus with what they consider to be a gotcha question. Uh, they say, what if a, a lady is married seven times to seven different men, and then they all die? In the resurrection, whose husband will she be? Uh, kind of a dumb question. But Jesus humors them and gives them the answer. They thought they were being very clever. But once again, Jesus points to Scripture as the final authority in what we are to believe. Mark 12, verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. By the way, that's an important point there, that Jesus says clearly and without apology, you are wrong. Some Christians are afraid to say that. We have this idea that it's not loving to tell someone that what they believe is wrong. But in reality, it's loving to tell people the truth. And if our beliefs are not based in Scripture, then by the authority of Jesus, we can say they are wrong. The Bible is the standard of truth, and Jesus taught us to read the Scriptures and base our beliefs on what it teaches. So Jesus believed that the Bible was absolutely true and accurate. He taught that it was the authority both in what we are to believe and how we are to live our lives. And finally, Jesus believed that the Bible was the very word of God. 
Jesus said that Scripture was not merely written by men, but that God's Spirit guided the prophets as they wrote. For example, Jesus said in Mark 12, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, uh, until I put your enemies under your feet. The, the portion in quotes there is from Psalm 110. And notice that Jesus says, David didn't just write this, but he wrote this in the Holy Spirit. God was speaking through David as he wrote these words. And so the Bible is perfect, it is true, it is accurate, it is authoritative, it is trustworthy, because it wasn't just written by some smart people. It was written by God. All scripture is given by God. He is the ultimate author of every word. This is why Isaiah can predict in detail the death and resurrection of Jesus so perfectly. Because Isaiah didn't come up with that. Uh, God was guiding him as he wrote those words. Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. This is the view of Jesus and all of his true followers. The Bible is the word of the living God. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is how Jesus viewed the Bible. He said it was perfect. It cannot be broken. Everything written in it will happen. It is the authority on which we base our beliefs. It is the rule book for how we live our lives. And all of it is this because God himself is the ultimate author of Scripture. He guided the prophets so that they wrote down exactly what he wanted us to have. The Bible is God's very words. This was how Jesus taught about Scripture. And by the way, just as a side note here, the same Spirit of God that inspired the Old Testament also guided the, write, uh, the writing of the New Testament. Jesus said in John 14 to his apostles that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so these men who follow Jesus throughout his ministry would be given the Holy Spirit after he leaves. And the Holy Spirit of God would teach them and would bring to their memory what Jesus had said to them. This is where we get our New Testament. Uh, the apostles wrote down the books of the New Testament just like the prophets wrote the Old Testament. They were guided by the Spirit of God. And so if someone ever asks you, why do you believe the Bible? Uh, one simple answer to that question is to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And Jesus taught that the Old Testament was absolutely true and authoritative. And then he authorized the apostles to write the New Testament. Believing the Bible then is really an essential part of what it means to be a Christian. We're going to go back to our text and finish up here. Luke 18, beginning verse 31. Taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Uh, that's referring there to the Romans. The Jews, of course, condemned Jesus, but they didn't have the authority to actually execute him. Uh, they were under the occupying Romans, and so they had to get their permission, basically, to carry out the execution. And so in the Gospels, you see Jesus standing on trial before the Sanhedrin and then before Pilate. Uh, Pilate was the Roman authority. The Sanhedrin were the, was the Jewish authority. So he was condemned by the Jews, then handed over to the Romans uh, for execution. And so he says there that the scriptures say that, that he would be delivered over the Gentiles, he, he'd be mocked, he'd be shamefully treated and spit upon. And then uh, verse 33, after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. 
Okay, so there are seven specific predictions that Jesus makes. He's going to be handed over to the Romans. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, killed, and then rise the third day. Seven prophecies. And we're going to look very quickly at the fulfillment of each of these. First of all, handed over to the Romans. Uh, Matthew 27, 1. When morning came, all the chief priests, the elders of the people, took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. This is where the Jewish leaders hand Jesus over to the Roman government to be executed. Number two, Jesus said he would be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. We'll see all of these in Matthew 27, beginning verse 28. It says, They stripped him, they put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put, a, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. So there you see him being mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon. Number three, flogged. Uh, John 19, verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Number four, Jesus said he would be killed. John 19, 16, They delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and when he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, there they crucified him. Number uh, next, number seven, Jesus said he would rise the third day. Luke 24, verse 1, On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their, head, their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Everything that Jesus said would happen, everything that the scriptures had foretold, took place. Last part of our text, verse 34, after Jesus says, foretold this to his disciples, all these things that are coming. It says, they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, how could they not understand this? This seems very straightforward. I mean, he says there, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. There, there's some teachings of Jesus that I understand how someone could misunderstand them. This one seems pretty straightforward. So how did they miss it? Uh, there's four reasons that I thought of. Maybe you could think of some more. Number one, I think they, they misunderstood this or didn't understand this because of preconceived notions about the Messiah. They had assumed the immediate kingdom arrival. And so if Jesus was this king, him dying did not fit in their understanding of the prophecies of Messiah. In other words, they had misinterpreted scripture, and thus they had a faulty view of why Jesus had come. It was inconceivable to them that he would be killed. Number two, this one kind of overlaps with the other one. Not only did they misunderstand the nature of the Messiah, but they also misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. It wasn't about overthrowing the Roman government then and there. It was about saving humanity from sin. And the death and resurrection of Jesus did not fit their understanding of how the Roman government would be overthrown. Number three, I think they didn't understand these words because they didn't want it to happen. Sometimes we're blind to the truth simply because we don't want it to be true. <clears throat> In Matthew 16, uh, we're told from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, 
suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So they didn't understand this because they simply didn't want to. They refused to even entertain the possibility of Jesus being killed. And then lastly, number four, I think they didn't understand these things because they did not have the Holy Spirit. We cannot rightly understand Scripture on our own. Uh, after the resurrection, Jesus came and he explained to them the Scripture. It says he opened their minds. He showed them the things that they, they were missing. He helped them piece it all together. And Jesus said that the Spirit was going to come and indwell all Christians in the future to help us understand Scripture as well. He is our guide as we read the Bible to give us understanding and clarity about what it says. Uh, Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 2. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit, we could never understand the words of God. But the Spirit is with us to help us, to open our minds, uh, to guide us as we seek to learn and grow in our understanding of the Bible. I hope by now you've seen how important these verses in Luke 18 are. Here Jesus is teaching the disciples that God knows the future, uh, that God reveals it accurately to his prophets, that everything revealed in the text of Scripture is certain. It will be accomplished. It's settled. If God promised it, it's as good as done. Everything Scripture predicts will happen. Think about the significance of that. First of all, it means that God knows all future events down to the most minute detail. I mean, think about what, what if Pilate had not agreed to execute Jesus? What if Judas had not betrayed him? So many human decisions and perfect circumstances had to align for Jesus to be crucified. And God knew all of it centuries before it happened. God orchestrated all of it to accomplish his plan of saving us from our sins. It was all a part of his plan of salvation. Acts 4, beginning verse 27 says, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Uh, God knows the future and God's plans will take place exactly as he says. The second implication of fulfilled prophecy like we've seen this morning is that God has truly spoken in Scripture. Fulfilled prophecy assures us that when we read the Bible, we're not reading things that just human beings came up with on their own. They could never have come up with all of this. We are reading what God guided them to write. And then number three, we can trust every word of Scripture. This is really a logical conclusion of the first two points. If God knows everything down to the smallest detail, and if God has spoken through the authors of Scripture, then everything Scripture teaches is entirely true and trustworthy. When we open the Bible, it is as if God himself were here in front of us speaking in an audible voice, and we should take that very seriously. This is why our, our services here at Lakeshore Baptist Church are so centered around Scripture. It is our high regard for God's Word that leads us to preach whatever the text says, uh, whether it's something I would prefer to talk about or not, uh, whether it's something that's a personal uh, weakness of mine or a strength. Whatever the text says, 
I'm going to preach it because I believe these are God's very words. And as a church, we try to base everything that we believe and everything that we do on what the Bible says. The teaching that you hear behind this pulpit, as best as I know how, is not my opinion. I don't, I don't spend uh, each week coming up with things to say that I think would be helpful. I spend each week studying a text of the Bible so that I can teach what it says. Because when the Word of God is rightly taught, the voice of God is truly heard. One final text this morning. This is kind of a summary of the words of Jesus in Luke 18. It says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures.